0: So I had to wait for my cue here, and this whole thing about this cue is that um, right off the bat, I need to jump into a, just a couple announcements. So the first one is, is we are starting to record our sermons uh, uh, with video. And I almost said videotape, but there's no tape. So it's, it's digitally, but we're going to start putting them online, because for some people we know, seeing helps you focus. So it's not just putting earpods in. And listening to the sermon, but you could actually sit down and watch it in front of your computer or on your phone or whatever it is. That being said, though, that being said, it is going to be rough the first few weeks, okay? So just know, my video editing skills are like this, okay? I teach public school, so I got nothing, (laughs) okay? So I'm going to start doing it, and then hopefully you guys can have patience with me, and over time, they'll start to look better. I'll start to add like You know, like little name captions about who's speaking and stuff like that. But in the meantime, you're going to get a really weird cut for the first few weeks and it's going to be awkward. But just have patience with us, please. And just have grace with us as we do that. Um, The second one is, as you guys will notice, things changed a little bit. Notice that we did not have somebody read the the passage that's going to be read before, that's going to be preached on this week because. What we started to notice as we went through the book of Judges was that as we read, um, that ate up about like 10 minutes of our, of our sermon time, and it just took a lot of time. And so, and it's got a lot of crazy names most of the time and just some other stuff. So instead of doing that, we're just going to kind of, as we preach the text, we're going to walk through it. Does that sound good to you all? So we're still going to stay true to it. We're still going to go through it. But instead of having somebody read it beforehand and then pray over it, we're just going to have somebody come up and pray over the sermon and then we will dive into the the passage and hopefully as we exege the passage we will be able to read through it. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah? yeah. Okay. All right. Now, I am really fidgety right now and I'm going to tell you guys right now, I feel completely unprepared and lost and distraught this morning. And the smile on my face is probably not saying that. But I think that it's by God's design this week that I'm struggling through this. And I feel like something's going on with my mic. Is there something weird happening? Or is it just me? I'm just hearing weird things? Okay. See, I'm telling you guys, there's something going on right now with me. What's up? Oh, okay. No. Okay. Sorry. Starting over. Welcome. Good morning, everybody. Now, for people watching at home, when you guys go to watch this, I might walk out of frame. I'm a mover, so um, I'm going to try and stay limited to this time to my, what is it, halfway here and my line over here? Okay, great. Okay, so that's how much I'm going to move today. So what I would like for you guys to do is I want you guys, just in preparation, go ahead and open your Bibles up to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel. Now... What I'm going to say is I get the joyous task of starting the book, which, if you guys know, takes a little bit of time. Last time Daniel got to start Ephesians, he went an hour and 22 minutes and had two verses. I have over a chapter that I have to go over, as well as introducing the Bible. So just put that into reference as I go along today. So what we are going to talk about is, first of all, 1 Samuel, and why are we going to go through 1 Samuel, Okay. Well, I want you guys to know that here at the Mountain Church, we don't just randomly choose books of the Bible because we liked them in previous times as we've read them. So we just go through them. We want to have some sort of purpose to why we go through these. Now, many of you guys were with us when we went through the book of Judges. Now, what we know is that the Bible was kind of compiled, put together, and the reason that they put, the, or that like the how they put the Bible together was that they kind of tried to put it together in chronological order, minus the like uh, prophets. So they tried to like put stuff together. So they went, started at Genesis, then Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they had the Torah, so I said, okay, that's great. Then they started going through and they said, well, let's put things into order. So then a lot of you guys are going, okay, Judges, what should be next? Ruth, yeah, Ruth. But the problem is is Ruth was not actually in like the original way the the Bible was structured or in the way that the the uh the Hebrews, uh, the Hebrew text had it. Ruth was not in there. Now, there's two reasons why people think they put Ruth in there. First of all, chronologically, some people think it was put in there because that's when they think it happened, kind of like right after the time of the like Judges ended, before Samuel started. And then there was this other piece that's really funny: is a lot of people say that they put Ruth in there because Judges was so terrible. And I don't know if you guys remember how Judges ended. Right, we had the Levite and the concubine, and then them separating people up and like you know, cutting her up and sending her out to the nations, and then civil war and all this infighting. And so when you read the Bible and you were reading Judges, they were like, Man, that's depressing. Let's put Ruth in there. Because Ruth has a great story of, of a redeemer, right? The the idea that somebody could come and save and restore. So they put that in there, it just kind of is like a nice, like breath of fresh air. But what we know is that what we have this set of books that which they call, I believe it's called like the former prophets, and it started with Joshua, which we didn't go through. We started with Judges, but then it was moving into this book called Samuel. Now we've broken it up into two books, 1st and 2nd Samuel, but most things say that it was really just one book. And the only reason we have it as 1st and 2nd Samuel is because of how it fit on scrolls. So they broke it up so that it fit, and it fit nicely onto two scrolls, standard size scrolls. I don't know what a standard size scroll is, but just know it fit all of First Samuel on it. Okay, so that was your standard size scroll. So it split up that way. So you were supposed to essentially read this story as Judges straight into Samuel and what Samuel was written about into Kings and Chronicles, right? And it was this one long story that was to be told. And what was the purpose of this story? Well, this story—and what's awesome because we just got out of the book of Galatians—was to show us what it was like to live under the law. So, when you look at Judge or Joshua through, like, the end of, uh, uh, like, uh, Kings and Chronicles, when you get to those books, they don't know exactly where it stopped. That's why I kind of keep saying that it stops somewhere in there. But it's this idea that you were supposed to be able to see what it looked like to live under the law and what God's people did when they tried to live under the law. And so we get to see that in Judges when they started living under the law cuz Joshua sent them out, they became they they inherited their lands that they were supposed to inherit and then in this we saw in the book of Judges that what happened, everything just started tanking, going downhill fast. The judges became worse and worse. They they judged for less and less time. They they just weren't following God's commands they weren't living the lives that they were called to live and we see this going downhill and like I said it's awesome because we just got out of the book of Galatians which when we went through it talked about this idea of you are you you are a slave to the law right when you when you were living under the law it was a burden it was it was an awful thing and we can see that and we're supposed to see that in the way that scripture's pointed out to us and so that's the entire reason that we want to start jumping into Samuel, and we're going to go through the whole thing. I'm pretty sure. When I say the whole thing, I mean first and second Samuel. It's a book. Okay. Now it's going to take us about three years to do it, but we're going to get through it because we're going to intermittently put some New Testament in there, the Book of John, like Daniel talked about last week, and we're going to be putting some of the minor prophets in there to help us just get a well-rounded idea of what Scripture is. Everybody tracking with me on that? Cool. All right, so that is our goal. So you know up front what our, like, our reasoning and why we want to go through that. Now, if you have any other questions on that, please come and talk to myself. Um, I'd really appreciate it if you talked to Daniel instead, because he's way smarter than I am and way more wise, and, and I've explained it the best I can already, so Daniel can give you a better version, okay? So are we, uh, let's go ahead and, and open our books up to First Samuel, First Samuel 1. Samuel 1. So as we get into 1 Samuel, many of you know when we study the Old Testament, we have three questions that we're going to ask, and those questions are on your handout, right? Which I lost. Oh man, I'm lost. No, you're good. You're good. Okay, so the first one, let's see if I can remember them. The first one, what does this story tell us about God's character? Did I get it close enough? Okay. Okay. And his relationship to his people. Okay, there we go. There's our first one. Thank you. It's like a test for me, right? This is good for me. All right, the second one is what does this story uh, show us about the meta narrative, or how does it connect to the meta narrative of the Bible? So, what does it show us about the bigger picture? How does it kind of like foreshadow into things? How does it teach us about Jesus? Is a lot of what dives into that question. And then, last is what exhortation or admonition do we get from this passage? So, essentially, What's something that we can like take tangibly from this to sh- help shape our lives or, or look to see how Jesus can help shape our lives in a certain direction, either by like a charge or like a warning. Those are what exhortation admonition means. It's either like kind of like a building up and pushing us forward or a warning in that. And some of the passages will have both. Some will have one or the other. It just depends on uh, what um, we feel the Spirit is leading us into preaching during that time. Okay. Does that make sense? Awesome. All right. So we're going to jump into first Samuel now. And what we're going to see today is that I'm going to make this really simple. Our first one is going to be really easy because what I want you guys to see and what I, what I, if I'm going to encourage you in anything is that when we read the old Testament, some of the stories in the old Testament are as easy as they seem. A lot of times we look at old Testament stories and we see Or we listen to pastors and they like break things down. What did this original word mean? What was the the difference here? And it starts to get overwhelming and we lose it because we go, man, if I can't read the Old Testament because I just don't understand the old Jewish tradition, I don't get this, I've never studied that, so this story doesn't make sense to me. Or we try and dive and pull our own meanings out of it because Scripture is supposed to speak to us and so I have my own relevant meaning, which is absolutely not true, okay? When Scripture was written, it had a purpose, Author had an intent and was trying to show you that. so our job is to get to that intent, and sometimes what we'd make mistakes on is trying to dive too much into something and pull something out that's not there. So when we study through this book, and especially in today's, I want us to see that looking at Old Testament scriptures and looking at this passage is as simple as it seems. So we start in first Samuel. We've just come out of a time in Judges where some terrible things are happening, where awful stuff is going on. And so now we get to this place where we start a story. And this story in our Bibles in ESV is called the birth of Samuel. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna read. And as we read, I'm gonna stop at certain places. I'm gonna say a few things. We're gonna get to the end and then we'll go over those three questions. Does that make sense? Awesome. All right, here we go. So there was a certain man of... Ramathans sophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, or Elkan, excuse me, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zeph, an Ephra- Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penea. And Paniah had children, but Hannah had no children. So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to stop us. Have we seen this theme throughout the Bible so far? We have. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they all, they all had this idea of like sons and wives without, without kids. And it's a common theme that comes up in the Bible. And it's important that we understand that. And we look for those themes as they come up. So I'm just going to point that out. Just, just take note of that, right? So now this man used to go up year by year. From his city to worship and to do sacrifice, or excuse me, and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phineas were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkahan, I don't know how to say his name, I'm really sorry, guys, sacrifice, he would give portions to Penea, his wife and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Important to notice here. What do we notice? That we have a man that has two wives, right? Yeah, two wives. One has kids, and he gives her her portions. One does not have kids, and he gives her what? Double, double portions. That's a big deal. He gave her double portions, Okay. And then it says that he loved her. So we know that he loved her. It's not like she was this outcast wife, right? That this, was, this was the wife that he loved. But we see a very important phrase here. Though the Lord had closed her womb. So notice, what are they doing? They are giving credit to God. They're giving credit to the Lord for closing her womb. This is something that the Lord chose to do, okay? So just hold on to that. That's important for us to remember. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkahan, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? So I think we see some, some funny stuff going on here, right? You have this lady who has no children. She's being harassed by the other wife. She's being taunted by the other wife. And and so she goes out and she cries. She won't eat. She weeps. And what is the husband's response? Hey, aren't I enough? And we see right there, I think that it's important for us to see that the husband is not responding in the right way. Okay? Not because he's being, like, not nice to her, but he's, he's essentially putting her worth in him. And he's trying to point her to that. Hey, your worth is in me, and I love you a lot. I'm giving you double portion, so come on. What's the big deal? And she sees something very different. Now, I also want to point out to us the reason, one of the reasons that stories like this are put out to us is so that we know that the Mosaic Law had some things that Moses put in there that were not of like God's will and doing. Not saying that he did not like, allow them to happen, but it, would not, it was against his will. So the first one that we have here is marriage of two wives. And I don't know if you guys ever notice in the Bible, whenever a guy has more than one wife, does it ever end well? No, no it doesn't. So we have to start looking at things. Like I said, it's as easy as it sounds. We look at it and go, more than one wife? Terrible. Okay, it's bad. It does not work out. So what do we learn from that? Jesus was right when he said you should just have one man, one woman, right? Husband, wife, that's it. Because more than that, go back to the Old Testament, you'll see it doesn't work out, okay? So nobody ever lived happily ever after with all of their wives, okay? It just doesn't doesn't, uh, add up. So it's just good for us to learn these things as we go through there. So he says, he challenges her. Am I not more... To you than ten sons. And after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now, Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Now, what I like to do is when I read these, I try and picture them. So, picture this with me. He's sitting outside this temple. This priest is just kind of relaxed, right? This is not like some sort of like defense position. He's just relaxed, sitting by the door, probably just laid back, right? she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. What does that mean? That's a point back. It doesn't say that it's a Nazarite vow in here, but if we were reading this in the context of Jewish tradition, we would have seen that that's probably what she meant here that there's a Nazarite vow, so dedicated Lord. We saw that in the book of Judges with Samson. There we go. All right. So as she continues, continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. So he's like watching her, right? So you got this guy like laying up against a pole, kind of sitting outside the tent, like watching this lady pray. She's weeping, she's crying bitterly, and he's looking at her mouth. Like, why? Well, Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. Now, notice, I think it's important that we see this. Is it just a question? There's no exclamation point here. So Eli, in his mind, there is this woman who is crazy and drunk and he's just sitting at the the post... Over there at the end of the edge of the, the uh, temple, and he's just like, "Come on. How long are you going to be drunk? Why are you doing this?" What does this show us? This shows us that this was probably not an uncommon occurrence at the temple. That's a pretty sad thing, isn't it? You have people coming to a place where they want to sacrifice and worship God, and Eli has probably seen drunk people in there before going like, "Yeah, whatever. It's not that big of a deal. Come to the Lord out of your right frame of mind." whatever. Just how long are you going to do this? Let's get out of here. Come on. It's not that big of a deal. And so Eli kind of has this callousness already. Just this crazy old lady, right? She needs to get out of here. She's bothering me, right? Put your wine away from me. Just go ahead and stop drinking. But then we have Hannah who answers, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit, and I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink. But I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servants as worthless or as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. So she lays it out there to him. She's like, Listen, I'm not drunk, man. No, this is I'm I'm hurting. I'm in pain. So don't just write me off here. And then Eli answers. Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant you your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then when they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son. She called his name Samuel, for she said, "I have asked for him from the Lord." So, it's as simple as it seems, right? What did she do? She went to God. She asked God for for a son. And what did son do? Or what did God do? Re- yeah, remembered her first, right? Remembered her and then gave her a son. Now, We're going to kind of touch on this. I don't want us to think that this is, okay, so as long as I go and I start praying and I pray hard enough that it looks like I'm drunk, God will give me what I want. That is not the case here. There is a very specific thing that happens, and we're going to talk about that more as we get to those three questions, but I want us to understand, right, she had been going up here for years, had been getting harassed for years, and then she finally brought it before the Lord. And I don't know if you guys notice, she just says, if you will grant me something, and the first thing she wants to do after she's get it is to be granted with something is to do what? Give it back to the Lord. That is the very first thing that she says. If you will grant me a son, I will give him to you. That's a big deal. Because I don't know about you guys, but my prayers do not look that way most of the time. So it's important that we see that. So now... She's conceived, she bore a son, and his name is Samuel. All right. The man, Elkahan, and his, all his house went up to offer the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, which means about three years, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah her husband said to her, "Do what seems best to you, wait until you have weaned him, only may the Lord establish his word." So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. Now what do we see? We finally see the husband doing what he was supposed to do the whole time. He encouraged her in the right way. "Hey, listen, if that's what you have worked out with the Lord, then I want the Lord's will to be done here, so you do what you need to do." Okay, great. So and she so verse twenty four and she or and when she had weaned him so right when she weaned him she took him up with her with her along with a three year old bowl an ephah of flour a skin of wine and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh and the child was young so one thing I want you guys to know here is like. This is the parts where it's like you could read things, and if you start diving into commentaries, we get confused. I got confused because there's there's issues. Was it a three-year-old bull? Was it three different bulls? What are we supposed to interpret here? What are you supposed to say? None of that really matters in the story, in the grand scheme of things. What you're supposed to take there is that they brought a lot to sacrifice to the Lord. Does that make sense? There was a lot there. So that's how like, like thrilled they were with what God had done for them and how much they felt God deserved credit for. They brought him a lot. So an ephah, a flower, would have been a lot of flour, okay, like a lot. So just remember that, way more than what would have been, like, quote-unquote, necessary according to law. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli, who was the priest. You guys remember that, okay? So, they brought her, so he, uh, she brought the child to Eli, and she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. So, awesome picture of a woman of God who asked God to step in and intervene if it was his will, that she have a child. God gave her the child, and she followed through on her word, which was to give her son right back to the Lord. Beautiful picture, and if we stop there, we could say, that's awesome, great story. Because we see we can take a lot of stuff from that. It's that simple. Tune our prayers to see that, right? And I could send you guys out there, and we could spend weeks, honestly, just meditating and focusing on tuning our prayers in the way that Hannah's was in that moment. Lord, grant me whatever is in your will so that I can use that to serve you. But then in Samuel they give us this next little piece. So in in chapter two, it kind of continues on. Now remember, we've always talked about this. These chapters and all this kind of stuff were not in our original uh, manuscripts and stuff. So we don't wanna just be uh, held captive to like, okay, well, that was my chapter, so I'm done. We wanna continue going on if the story continues. So what we see here is that there is a prayer. And this prayer is from Hannah. So let's start in chapter two, verse one. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn, which is another word for like power or strength, just so you guys know. So my horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth des- uh, derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly, let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up from the poor, or excuse me, he raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. He makes them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken into pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So we have a beautiful prayer here, right? Now, the one thing I kind of want to talk about when we look at this prayer is that this prayer was meant to do a couple things. Now, a lot of us know that this prayer, um, if we've studied anything, reminds us a lot of the same prayer that, or of the prayer that Mary prayed when she found out about her situation with Christ. Um, coming and she was going to be the mother of Jesus, right? She had this prayer to God that looked and sounded uh, quite the same. But what we see here is that Hannah prays a lot like Jesus taught us to pray in the New Testament, where the first thing she does is she opens up by explaining who God is and how powerful he is and that there is no one like our God. She makes that very clear. There's no rock like you. There's nobody that has the power that you have. You are not in creation. You are above creation. And it's important for us to see that and understand that when Hannah prays, she is modeling such a great prayer for us. When we start our prayers, do we start them that way? Honoring God for who he is, the holy and set-apart God that is above everything. And then there's this next piece that I love, and I don't know if you guys caught it, but it's kind of this piece of like uh, paradoxes. And if you look back through there, I'll just give you a few moments, just kind of flip back through there. See if you can find some of them, right? She, she starts explaining things, right? Those who had food, right, are now even more hungry, but those who were hungry are no longer hungry, The strong, their bows break. But the weak, they become strong. She is giving ultimate power to God. She's saying, God, you have the ability to change all circumstances. Why does she go through this? Because she knows. She experienced it firsthand. She knows that God closed her womb, and she gave credit to God for closing her womb. It's because of you, you take away and you give. You took away my ability to have kids. And through your grace, through undeserved reasons, you gave me that ability back and now I have a kid. You, God, can do whatever you want. And that's her prayer. And she shows uh, us as the readers that this is exactly how she feels, what she believes. So what this does is this makes us jump into our first point here, about what does this teach us about God's character and his relationship with his people? I can say it one best way. God is sovereign. Write it down. God is sovereign. Because I know a lot of us know it. Like like here, we can say it, but I don't think we know it here. God is sovereign. What is sovereign? He is powerful. And when I say powerful, I mean all-powerful. There is nothing that he cannot change or control. We learn about that in this story. This story is showing us that God has a purpose, he has timing, and he allows for things to happen when they are supposed to happen. Now, one thing I always like with this is, Daniel and I were even talking about this, is like, we naturally want to jump. It's like, oh man, God finally answered her prayers, But I want us to make sure we understand scripture does not put a plural on prayers. Because does it ever say in the passage that she prayed for a lifetime to have a kid? It never does. So let's not assume that. So what happened? She prayed. She got tired of being beaten up. She was weary. She was hurting. She had all these things. And then what did she do? She went to God, and that was her last thing. Man, I went to God, and I said, God, if this is your will, let it happen. If it's your will, because now the only thing I can do is say that it's, your, it's to your glory. And the minute she was able to do that, what did God do? God used her situation to be able to do that. Like I said, I'm not telling you that you get everything that you want when you ask God for it. I don't want us to come across with that mentality because it's all for God's glory. If your glory is to not get something, if that's, the, if that's to the glory of God, then you're not gonna get it. And you have to be okay with that. And Hannah walked away knowing that. May God hear your petition and grant it. And like that's a priest, but she doesn't know, but she was, she was pretty convinced that that might happen. But just know that when we pray, we have to understand that God is sovereign. He is all-powerful. We learn that about God in this story. The whole book of Samuel is going to start showing us this, right? It's going to start showing us how God is in control of all situations. Even as it looks like man makes terrible decisions, it's all for the glory of God. So then the question becomes, how does this fit into the larger story of the Bible, the meta-narrative? Well, we can pull a lot of things out of here. What do we first see? We first see, like I pointed out earlier, it's important for us to hold on to these details, is that God continues to show us throughout all of the Old Testament that there's this theme about babies being born in miraculous ways. And it's not like an accident or some sort of coincidence that this ha- happened. This was a plan that God had in place. And everything is meant to foreshadow, point us towards this idea that a baby would one day be born that would change the world. And it was going to happen in a way that nobody expected. Who did God choose in this story? Hannah. Hannah was not from like this royal family. She was not well off in stature, right? Her, uh, her husband, it doesn't really say that he was like this great nobleman, right? Nothing, just a man of God that, or a man that went up every year to sacrifice. That's really all we know about him. So God chose somebody who was in a tough situation, who was weak, who was humiliated, who was humbled, she had no reason to be proud. We know and we've learned that in this time, if you did not have a son, you did not have a kid, but more or less a son, this was devastating. That was your identity. You essentially, as like a woman, had no like, in their, in their, in their realm, like really like viewed it as like your purpose was missing. Okay. And so we have to understand that. Like she, when you want to talk about being broken and being as low as you could possibly feel, she got it, right? And so we see that God continues to choose people like this to work out of his sovereignty to show that it's only through his power, his might, to his glory that these situations can change. We see this all throughout scriptures. I mean, we see it with Paul, Paul was a man who killed people, who, who uh, uh, put people in jail, all for loving Jesus. And what did Jesus do? Just like bent him down on his hands and knees and destroyed him. And then built him back up. And the only thing that Paul could say is, it's only to the testament of the glory of God. It's nothing that I did. God did this. Only God has the power to change like that. And this the story The Bible is meant to show us that. This fits into the meta-narrative in that way. It continues to show us what was happening under the law, that bad things were happening under the law. People were, were not doing what they were supposed to be doing. A man had two wives, which he was not supposed to be doing. It caused friction. It caused hurt. It caused pain. It brought her lower and lower and lower till she felt worthless. She came to God, and in God's sovereignty, he brought her a child, Now, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I am going to say this because it it does bear talking about, is what we have to see is if we know the story of the Bible at all, we know Samuel is a very important character. He is not the hero of the Bible. Don't confuse it when I say that, but he is a very important character in scriptures. Now, I am going to go as far to make a bold claim that Samuel is a character who really foreshadows the coming of Christ. How does he do that? He was born into a humble situation. He was dedicated towards God. He was one of the first men men remember I'm calling him a man cuz he had flaws. He was a man who fulfilled the roles that we look to, right? He was a judge. He was trained up as a priest. You guys following me there? And then he is what a lot of people consider a prophet. He fulfilled all these roles that when we look at Jesus, Jesus fulfilled all those perfectly. But Samuel was one of these guys who was born out of this terrible situation, given to God, and then he becomes somebody that is speaking for God to the people. They have this great leader, and what do they do? Hey, nothing. Give us a king. This whole book foreshadows the coming of Jesus, why we need a savior, a king to rule over us, but that is not the man that we are looking for. This book is another book that shows us in the long line of how people missed Jesus. And we think it's crazy. You guys had Jesus living in your time and you missed him. Well, it's nothing new. The Israelites overlooked good leaders all the time. God gave them people that were like to set over them and they just kind of blew that off because it wasn't what they were looking for. We're gonna see that over and over again throughout the book of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel as we go through. That's how this story and this book fit into the meta-narrative of the scriptures. So then what admonition or exhortation can we take from this? I think there is one of each. One of each. So I'm going to start with the exhortation. Let's build this up. Okay. What does this story tell us? I know in this room that there are people who are going through some tough stuff. And I'm not talking about just your child keeping you up at night, I'm talking about tough stuff that hurts that is deflating, that is eating at us every day, that is trying to pull us back into sin, trying to draw us back into our nature, which we learned in Galatians is always gonna be the fight. Our sin nature is always gonna be pulling us, but it's by the grace of God that we are being able to fight out of that. So what do we see in this? Hannah is a perfect example. You may be getting tormented. There may be tough things in your life. There may be hurts, but what I want us to see is that we have a Savior who died on a cross to carry that burden for you. Whatever you think is hard and whatever you think you, you've gone through and the hurts that Jesus doesn't know, the man was crucified on a cross, the most torturous of deaths. And not only that death, but he carried the weight of all of our sins. He wore them. He felt our pain. He knows your struggles. He knows what you are going through. And he is trying to show you, child, when you read scriptures, see. See that I can relieve that pain. I can relieve that. I'm going to use that for my glory. Your life is not about you. This book is not about you. When we look at this too much as a love story for us, we miss everything as what uh, Matt Chandler calls the gospel in the air. We miss the big picture. We miss that God is using situations in each one of your lives to be able to shape things for his glory, not yours. And what's awesome is that we get to have hope and we get to find rest in that. We may never experience peace on this earth, but that does not matter. We have an eternity with God that is gonna be so much better than anything that this life has to offer. And we can rest and we can stay so secure in that. This is what Peter talks about when he says, be ready to give reason for the hope that you have. He's not just saying, oh, why are you smiling? How come you can endure Why can you make it through the day when you have a job that stinks and a boss that yells at you and people who don't appreciate what you do and you're a mom at home who your kids treat you like dirt because they have sin nature and they haven't fully experienced who God is, that we can say, I'm going through all of that for the sake and the glory of Christ. So then, when we pray, our prayers should be in tune with that. Lord, if it is your will that I continue to suffer, then let me praise you as I suffer. We sing songs that talk about that. I'm going to praise you in the fight because I know that's where you are. We sing lyrics like, I'll praise you on the mountain, but I'll praise you when the mountain is in my way. Do we do that? Do we praise God for suffering? What have we seen over and over again? God uses suffering for his glory. So we count it as a blessing when we suffer for Christ. We see that with Hannah. Mocked, ridiculed, beat up. Treated like dirt. But still look to God for her ultimate satisfaction. So what's our admonition? If that's not you, there's clear warnings. Let's just be honest. What's the other piece? What's the opposite side here? If you're one of those people who's always known as a proud person, who can't lower themselves, who can't humble themselves in certain situations, who can't admit sin to one another, who can't break a facade of people seeing like this good, like God is always good and he's always doing good things in me. And like, that, there's no thing in scripture that says that we just have to continue to act like there's no pain. There's hurt, there's pain, and we can feel it and we can admit it. And there's sin in our lives and we want to share that with each other. We want to bear one another's burdens. That's why we serve as elders, Daniel, Nathan, myself. That's why we serve as elders in this church because we love each and every one of you and we want to bear those burdens. But if you're not willing to admit those, if you never want to admit that things are wrong, if you always want to just put on this facade of fakeness and all this kind of stuff, then God, it says in Hannah's prayer, God is going to destroy you. You might be a believer, and I'm not the one that gets to question that. You might be a person of God, but God is going to break you. So my plea is humble yourself. Do it before God has to chop your legs off. We see this. We saw this in Judges. One of the biggest examples is we saw the story of Samson. Samson was dedicated to the Lord. He lived a Nazarite vow. And what did God finally have to do? Let him cut off his hair and gouge out his eyes and then put him as a slave. Go through all that suffering before Samson could really see how God deserved the glory for everything that he had done. Brothers and sisters, I pray we don't get to that point. We need to come to God with a humbleness that says, God, you are above all things. You are bigger. You are better. This creation is below you. You are not in this creation with us. We don't get to determine things, we don't get to bargain with you. You guys ever seen those movies? God, if you just do this, my life is yours. It's already His can't give him something that belongs to him. We need to start living that way, tuning our prayers to that, looking at Hannah's prayer and say, God, you are set apart. You are holy. You are better. There's nobody powerful like you. God, you're going to destroy the weak. You're going to humble them. So please, don't, I don't, I don't want to be like that. Humble me, break me. Allow me to see your will so my life can be a life that represents your will and your glory. Put me in situations, Father, ask for it. Put me in situations where I have to suffer so that people can ask me, man, that really sucks. And I get to say, "Eh, it's not too bad. I have a Savior who died on a cross for me. And if this is what I have to do to bring him glory, then I want to do it. I'm going to tell you right now, guys. I'm terrible at that. I don't often pray for suffering. Hold me accountable. I struggle with this. You guys, I suffer. I fight with my wife. I have terrible dreams that keep me up all night and I don't sleep. You guys are seeing the, what happens out of that. My heart breaks when I am not giving God the glory that he deserves, when I'm not asking for things to be in tune with his will. And my heart breaks for your lives and your um, existence and what you guys are doing, your salvation. As I think about that and as we, we serve this church, and I know Daniel would say the same thing and I know Nathan would say the same thing. Brothers and sisters, we love you guys. And we want your lives to reflect a life that is honoring of Christ. And sometimes that is good things. And a lot of times that is bad things. But how do we look to God as our ultimate satisfaction to know that it is all for his glory and he is doing something. And it's not always for us to know the outcome. He alone is sovereign, not us. He is the powerful one who gets to choose what happens. He can send down to Sheol or he can raise up. My prayer and our, our admonition today is that we start treating him like a God who is all powerful, but also rejoice in the idea that there is hope beyond our suffering. We can suffer, we can endure because Jesus did it for us. He fulfilled that. Not our husbands, not our boyfriends, not our wives, not our girlfriends, not our children. None of them can fulfill what Jesus did for us on the cross. Like Hannah, I pray that our prayer is in tune with that. God, be sovereign. Shape my heart to be like yours. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Father, we thank you for your dying work on the cross. You're raising again to defeat sin and death. Father, we are so blessed beyond understanding when we think about the work of your son. And Father, I thank you for stories in the Bible that remind us that you were sovereign. Father, that remind us that we are not lords of ourselves. We were not meant to be kings of our own lives, of other people's lives. Father, you and you alone stand as the one and only creator. Father, the only redeemer. Father, the only person who is worthy of praise and glory. And Father, we pray that as we read these stories, as we see these examples in the Bible, that our hearts are tuned to understand that you are not a God who sits idly by And just waits for things to happen. But Father, you sent your son to suffer. To suffer for us. Father, I think it's so easy for our hearts to be callous to the idea that you died on a cross. Your son died on a cross to wear the weight of our sins. That's mine and everybody here's and everybody in the world's. Father, that you died to wear those sins. And Father, out of that, that gives us hope to live beyond tomorrow that even if we are going through the toughest times, we can still have hope and we can have joy that goes beyond just a fake smile on our face, but a true joy that is founded in an everlasting peace that comes through you. So Father, I pray that we tune our hearts to your will. Father, that we see our suffering as a blessing and say, Father, bring it on. Father, we love you and we thank you for who you are. We pray this in your name, amen.